I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast. I'm Rashan, one of the co-founders, and today I'm going to be joined by Jessica Hagen, the writer behind the play Queens of Sheba. To be honest, I've seen it myself a few years ago and it was nothing short of amazing. And the play is going to be having another run this month. So I thought it would be good to let you guys know all about it, delve into some of the themes of Jessica herself and, and understand exactly what it takes to be a black playwright. So Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, one of the questions we always ask our guests are what makes you a dope black woman? So we're going to kick it off straight away with that question. Oh my gosh, you didn't warn me. I know, it's, it's, it's an overload, but just go whatever comes to your head. <laughs> no, I think what makes me a dope black woman is simply the fact that I'm a black woman. I think all black women are dope um, in, in, in so many capacities. Um, and I think I own it. I think I'm beautiful physically, emotionally, spiritually, and nearly financially. And I think that makes me a dope black woman. I love that. I don't think, we, I don't think, I don't think we've had that yet. I, I'm a dope black woman because I'm a black woman and we are dope. That's a really good answer. Like, it's a simple answer, but it's, it's good. It, it, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, so simple, but so true. No, 100%. And um, as I said before, you're a playwright, you're a scriptwriter. How did you even get into that? Because the industry doesn't have a lot of black people in it, as we all know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really good question, actually. I started off writing, writing like, spoken word poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was saying, like, I grew up in the grime scene era where like, like grime was everywhere. And I really wanted to be a rapper. Like I really wanted to be a grime MC, but I just, I don't know, I just didn't have what it took. Um, and so I got into spoken word. And so I used to just write things using spoken word, which is what Queens is originally. Um, and through Queens, I worked with Ryan Calais Cameron and he uses spoken word pieces and we turned it into a script. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, wow, I'm actually a writer. And then just learned how to write in that way and started doing like loads of online courses. So Queens was like my first play, um, which happened to do really, really well. But yeah, so that's how I learned. That's interesting. And I know with with the Queens of Sheba, a lot of the themes are from the perspective of what it means to be a black woman in England. And it probably relates to women across the globe, really. But what type of stories are you passionate about telling? Is it mainly from the the black woman perspective or the other areas you you delve into as well? Yeah, honestly, most definitely. Like, I think I'm most interested in telling stories from the black woman's perspective because I am a, a black woman and I've had such an interesting experience because of being a black woman. Um, but it's so funny what you say about like it being globally and around the world because I like, I moved to Ghana three years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I'm back and forth between London and Ghana. And like my experiences have really changed like being in a country where everyone is black. Yeah, actually, a majority of people are dark skin and it's really, really changed like my experiences and my perspectives when it comes to racism and sexism. Mm. And it made me realize that I have to be like quite fluid in my writing and that it's not just one experience that I'm speaking of. And it's OK if my experiences change. It's OK that 
I spend a majority of my time in a place where racism just isn't discussed because, you know, this the country is black. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I always like to write from my perspective. Um, I find myself very funny. And so it gives me a lot of fuel for my for my writing. I think that's a really interesting take, actually, because I told the story ages ago on the podcast where I went to Antigua, mm-hmm. which was the first country I'd been to as an adult that was predominantly black. And when I went there on the plane back to England, I was crying. And I, and I thought at the time I was crying. I was 16. And I thought at the time I was crying because I loved the country and I was there for like four weeks. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized I was crying because I knew the weight that came with me being black once I landed in the UK. Right. And every time I go back to that country and then come back again, I feel that weight again. Yeah. And it's interesting because you show up differently. You're able to be yourself in a different way. That's still authentic. It's not to say that when you're in the UK, you're not you and you're, you've got a mask on, but there's a different, there's like more layers of you that are kind of on show when you're in a predominantly black country because you don't have to think about things like microaggressions or how you're going to perce- be perceived if you laugh too loudly exactly. and things like that. So it's really interesting because I was going to say, even though you say that like racism doesn't exist in the same way in Ghana, for example, I guess colorism does. And that's something that's still relatable worldwide as well. But what have you learned about yourself since moving to Ghana? Sorry, are you from Antigua? Uh, I like to say that I am, but really I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. I was just curious. Um, it's so funny because like, I, I remember like a few weeks ago, Ari Lennox came to Ghana. She came in December and she was writing all of these things about like she was in tears when she got here because there was just such a sense of belonging mm. and there were things that she didn't have to be concerned about. And you know what Twitter's like, people were just like blasting her. Yeah, I did. I did. I saw the backlash of everyone getting onto her. Um, yeah. And I think she said she's going to come off social media as a result. Yeah, she like left Twitter. But basically people were talking about like romanticizing the experience of being a diaspora and romanticizing Africa. Um, when obviously people in Ghana were like, there are things happening in this country. But I really, really got where she was coming from being a diasporan. Like, um, mm. I completely understand it. There, and like you said, colorism still very much exists. Sexism still exists. So there are definitely still prejudices that exist on the land. But I think racism is something that I found so weighty. Um, and I still find everything else weighty. So it's just one less weight that I don't have to deal with. But funnily enough, like in a place like Ghana, you've got people here who are like Lebanese doing business here. You've got Chinese people doing business here. You've got like um, European people who are working from the embassies doing business here. Um, And so you see, you still see those dynamics, but you can choose whether to engage with them or not. Mm. Um, I think it's matured me a lot. Um, I think it's, it's definitely shifted my understanding of my identity and it's made me tougher. (laughs) I don't Ghanaians are, are strong they're strong in a way that like um the things that we find that we that upset us they find laughable mm. and so you change the color of your conversation um and you develop thick skin as well because if you don't develop thick skin like you'll just get eaten alive <laughs> that's the honest truth what's an example of something that they would find laughable that we would maybe be a bit, be a bit more sensitive to if somebody calls you fat in the UK, there'll probably be a fight or you'll cry. Like, in the <laughs> fat, you'll cry. Do you know what I mean? Or like, there'll be a fight. Like, yeah. I can't get on a bus and someone calls me fat and it's okay in London. Like, that would never happen. What? So when you're in Ghana, like, a stranger will call you fat, could call oh you fat? Gosh. 100%. Like, they'll describe you. They'll be like, oh, yeah, that fat girl. Or like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a descriptive word there. And people will literally, <laughs> like, my, my boyfriend is like right next to me and he's laughing as I'm talking because it's like, it's a description like people use it I'm not describe. gonna lie yeah me 
as much as people think I've got I've got a tough skin, I'd be crying. If someone's like, oh, look at that fluffy girl. No, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. I'm, I'm working on it. I am working on it. Now's not the time. That was me. Because I remember when I first moved, I'm like, who are you talking to? And then I realized that when you get angry. You just want to beef all the aunties. <laughs> when you get angry, they also find it funny. Because it's like, for them, it's like, are you not fat? Like, what are we <laughs> When I was in secondary school, girls got beaten up for a lot less than that. Do you know what yeah, I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like, there were fights on buses for a lot less than that. Yeah. So it's things like that that have made me have to develop thick skin and just realise that, like, um, understand the country a bit more and, like, the dynamics and, and, and you know, things like that. So, yeah. That's so jokes. Because it actually reminds me of, like... So I'm Carib- I've got a Caribbean background, but I think... Okay. Genuinely, for anyone who's black, we all know what it's like when we have those auntie or uncles that will kind of right. overstep their marks of their opinions of telling you you've put on too much weight. Mm-hmm. I remember one day my granddad, yeah, my granddad, bless him, is like the most loveliest, sweetest person ever. And one day he was like, Shan, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so how have you put on so much weight? What's happening? <laughs> and it was like, he was getting at me, but he was trying to come from a place of compassion. Literally. And it was like, I want to spin your jaw, yeah. but also I understand that you're, you actually care about me. You're actually clocking right. that like, you've put on weight, this isn't your normal size. Are you good? Do you get what I mean? It was a weird line to be in. And that, I guess that's the best experience I've had of it. But more time I've had lots of aunties or uncles when I've put on weight or even lost weight. Just give me advice or give me commentary that I just read and ask for. So having to do with that, just we are trying to get bread in the morning. It's just a madness. Literally, I really, like, I, I, I really don't need this. I'm just trying to exist on the land. I'm about the economy and I'm trying to make money and it's telling me that I'm fat. So now I've got to think about getting a personal trainer and that's going to cost me more money and now I'm getting stressed out. Like, it's... It's such like, a this journey. is not what I asked for. <laughs> Whereas, like in London, and I don't want to say people are sensitive because that's not the right way to frame it. But like, yeah, there are just things that you do not say. Like, yeah, there are things that you just cannot and do not say. And I'm wondering if it's a good thing or a bad thing that Ghanaians are so casual when it comes to things like that. Um, but it's helped me because now I just have to get by. You know, I've become uh, more detached from like my physical state and my physical being mm, mm-hmm. um, so that I don't need to defend it as much as, as I did when I was in the UK. Like I was yeah. constantly having to defend how I looked like, whether it was my skin tone, I'm very, very dark, whether it was my hair texture. Do you know what I mean? I'm constantly mm-hmm. having to defend it. Whereas I don't have to do that here. I don't ever have to defend being dark skin here. You know, even though there are people that are bleaching their skin and, you know, mm-hmm. I never have to defend my skin tone. And that's a freedom for me. Was colorism something you feel like you experienced quite a lot whilst in the UK? Oh, definitely. Like, definitely. I remember, I think it was a few months ago, and I saw someone post the word blick on Instagram. Mm. And like my heart just, and my stomach churned because I remember what that word meant for me growing up. I remember mm. how that word was like used to to reduce me to absolute no- absolutely nothing um, mm. and to make me feel so down. And so it's something I experienced deeply. Like I'm very, very dark um, and I struggled. Like I really struggled in that time. I always speak about like um, the grime scene era because it was so significant. I remember at that time, like, you know, you know the girls that were in at the time, the guys that were in at that time, and I just wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And so I really had a complex growing up. Um, and I don't know what changed it, um, but it definitely changed, and I'm grateful for for the change. Yeah, I feel like we, 
as we, I feel like that this whole woke era that we're in now is definitely very vibrant, especially on black Twitter. But I feel like that slowly creeped in as we got older. I think we just all got more mature. We all got more wiser. Yeah, and we all just let go of, I guess, stigmas, stereotypes or comments that weren't actually us. They might have been embedded from like generations above us. Right. And I feel like a lot of us have attitudes and they're not, they're really not ours, you know. They're actually just things we heard growing up that we didn't challenge, that we thought was okay. Right. Because even like, what you said about the, the the term blick, and I think that's really interesting. So I'm I'm not dark skin, I'm not light skin, I'm I'm somewhere in between. Um, but I was with a guy the other day, and mm-hmm. was with a guy that I'm seeing, and he made a comment one day. He was looking in the mirror, and he made a comment, and he was like, "Oh, um, I love your skin." <laughs> now I have spots, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I knew <laughs> I knew he was talking about my skin skin. <laughs> I have funny. <laughs> Like I've got, I'm not, I haven't got spot spots, but I've got like dark marks where I've, I picked them before. Do you get what I mean? And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Because he's got great skin and he's dark skin, and he was like, "Oh, like I just love your skin. Like it's just such a nice color." And I was like, "But you've got a great color." And he was just like, "No, but I just love your color. Like I'm Blick man." Right. And he wasn't saying it in a way that I was like talking down on himself. I can't explain it. I've, I've translated it deeper than it actually was at the time. Like, he wasn't saying it in a way that was like, oh, I'm Blick and I want to be your color. It, was, it, it wasn't that at all. Like, he wasn't using the, the phrase or the word Blick in a way that was negative. It didn't mean anything negative to him. But for me, it meant a lot to me that he used that word. And I started lecturing him. Like, I started going in and he was like, Shan, chill. Like, I know I've got great, I love my skin. Like, it's not about that. But I think it's just interesting how, like, even on a gender level, yeah, how words affect us differently. Because when you're growing up in school and a guy's being called Blick, for example, a black man, right. you're still getting attention from white girls that are fetishizing you. Whereas when you're a black girl getting called Blick, it's normally from your own race. And the white guys probably didn't like you anyway. Exactly. Do you get what I mean? So it's like there's a double layer of how labels attach to us as black women. I think that's why the discussions on Miss Noir are so important. Because we speak about racism and, you know, we speak about, like, being black, but, like, black men have a completely different experience. And misogynoir noir is literally where racism and sexism meet. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very unique experience of being a black woman. Because when you're a black man fighting racism, you're still a man, so you still have that privilege. And then when we're doing, like, when we're discussing, like, sexism, you know, as a white woman, you still have the privilege of being white. But the intersect of, like, it means that, like, black women almost fall through the pipeline in those, like, different discussions and fights. Mm-hmm. Whereas misogynoir is where we can say, like, this is for us. Do you know what I mean? Like, this speaks directly to our experiences. And I know there are, def- there are definite intersects within that that we haven't explored yet but um it's why it's so important because of things like this and you know as you said at the start you're the writer of queens of sheba what was the process like for you because i know that you've gone on to win several awards you've had a successful sold out four week run at the end of edinburgh fringe festival in august 2018 yeah you got lots of five star reviews as a result of that so yeah talk to me about the process of it and also the inspiration behind it because i also read that it was linked to the district nightclub incident back in 2015 too. Yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. Like by God's grace, it's been such a journey. We have done so well. It was my first play um, and it did really well. But yeah, just to tell you how we started. Um, so there was a district incident that happened. Um, there was obviously like um, hashtag do I look district on Twitter. There were protests happening. 
at the time I was at SOAS University and it sparked so much conversation for us. It sparked conversations with my friends that maybe we hadn't had before, specifically about like nightclub culture. And I think for me, I grew up in an area, I went to a school which was like predominantly white. Um, I had a lot of friends at that time who were predominantly white. And after someone's birthday, everyone would be like, oh, let's go to... um, like Tiger Tiger or let's go to, you know, like the clubs in like the Piccadilly Circus Mayfair area. Mm. And I would always be like, so I'd always go for pre-drinks and I'd never go to those clubs afterwards. And this is before the district incident. And I could never really explain why I did not want to go. And so when the district incident happened, it really clicked for me because then I could be like to my friends, this is why I end the night at pre-drinks at your house, Mm. because I don't want the embarrassment of lining up at a nightclub and all of you have gotten through and they're like either letting me through because of pity or they're not letting me through at all. And so that incident obviously really resonated with me. Ryan Kalai Cameron, um, who's the uh, director, artistic director at Nouvelle Riche and the founder of Nouvelle Riche had been given like this scratch night at Camden People's Theatre to write something. And he recently did a play called Timbuktu, which was about like four black women, sorry, four black men. And then Jessica Kalisa, um, who was the director, had written her dissertation on misogynoir. And she'd, she'd said to Ryan, like, I think we should use this to write a play about black women, specifically misogynoir. And um, Ryan's like, cool. So we hosted some focus groups. We've got like all these black women in a space. And Ryan was like, Jessica, come down. Like, let's listen to what everyone's saying. Contribute to the conversation and write some poetry, write some spoken word based on like what's been di- being discussed. Um, so I sat in, listened to the conversations, we cried, we laughed, like it was amazing. And I just started writing and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And that's how Queens of Sheba was formed. I gave it to Ryan and Ryan was like, this is the entire play. With the themes in Queens of Sheba, they're really, really raw. And as a black woman watching it, I when I went and watched it, actually, I was sitting on the row next to some posh posh white people <laughs> and me and my friend yeah was like we're gonna laugh even harder <laughs> like once we clocked the play had funny elements we was like we're gonna laugh harder because this this is a space for us and you're gonna feel uncomfortable like yeah. we just we just hit a petty moment because we was like i've never watched something that was so triggering but in a non-triggering way like it's definitely a triggering play yeah but not in a way that you're gonna leave and feel like shit but in a, a way that you're gonna leave and want to unpack lots with your friends, you're going to want to talk to people about it. Like, I definitely left that play and thought, I want to see this in schools. Like, I want this to be conversations that happened earlier on rather than at the age that I'm at now. Do you get what I mean? I love that. So for you being a part of that whole process, did you find it triggering at all for yourself? Oh, definitely. We, like, I, so I was a large part of the rehearsal process at the beginning because um, I was still living in London at the time. And we cried in rehearsal. That our rehearsals were like raw. Um, and so though like we say for every cast that we have, they give so much into Queens. Like it's not just that they're given a script and they're reading lines, like they literally pour themselves into it. Um, it was a horrible process, but a beautiful process at the same time. Um, I cried a lot. There were points where I got angry. Um, there were points I even got frustrated. I remember there was a time where one of the actors didn't deliver a line well, right? They just threw away the line, which you do, especially when you've been in rehearsals and you're tired. And I remember getting so upset 
that they had thrown away the line, so pissed off, so angry. And I had to go, I think I went for a walk or I went upstairs and I realized that my anger or my upset wasn't towards the actress. It was still the pain from what those words were conveying. And I think Mm. at the time where they didn't read the line properly, it felt like my experience was being dismissed. Um, And so that's how personal Queens was to me. Um, And I think as I've evolved and as time has gone on, I've been able to like, um, try and detach a bit from it emotionally but yeah it's 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 our heart it's the heart of everyone who has kind of sat and resonated with it and then I'm so happy that you guys laughed out loud because that's what's supposed to happen it's our space do you know what I mean it's yeah it's, it's a for us by us production and I love especially when I go and see queens and it's a room full of black people and they're like standing up dancing like whatever whatever that's what I wanted um, and that's what we wanted to create and I love that you see white people in the audience who are laughing because it's funny but low-key they're offended because like for once they're being mocked you know what I mean yeah like, yeah for yeah, once, yeah. For once they're the butt of the joke like for once we're like turning them into caricatures um and so now they they know how it feels um which is which is it's a little guilty pleasure of mine. It's really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And whose decision was to, it to have the staging like stripped back? It was actually, I think it first came from Ryan. Um, I think what happened is we were going through rehearsals and we we're running it through and we were like, this doesn't need anything. Mm. Like not because it's so amazing and like having a set takes away, but we were just like, actually, let's keep it raw. Mm. let's just let let's 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 use the girl's imagination so when they're in a room let's get them to act in a way that we really believe that they're in a room um when they're at the club like let's let's get them let's get them to dance in a way that you dance when you're at the club um and we just thought yeah let's just keep it naked so no, you it's one of those things that's like for 60 minutes you have nothing to look at but the four girls it's either you're you're, you're paying attention or you've switched off you have no choice and then it also gives the queens uh, a task of like really capturing your attention at every point. They can't hide behind a chair or a tree or a mirror. Like all it is, is you and them. I think for me, that's why I think it's so important and so necessary to be taken. I'm, I'm, I manifested this for you to schools and to people and to workplaces and to spaces where it's not just black people because it is so stripped back and laid back, you have to take it in. Yeah. You can't You can't not understand the message that's being conveyed in all the different scenes. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so powerful because often or not, you can you can go and see a play in the West End and it doesn't matter how great it is, you, you still drift off because that's just, that's just the attention span of us in 2022. Do you get what I mean? But I feel like the the way it's been told, the actors, the the stories, the, the, the humour, everything about it genuinely just captivates you the the entire time but for you then because you've obviously seen it so many times because you've been part of the rehearsals you was part of the writing process etc what what's a scene for you that is your favorite like what part of it sticks out to you the most sure and I just want to say that um it's you know Queens was is actually being used for Lambda's final student showcase this year which oh amazing yeah, yeah yeah and then it's been in a few curriculums um, so we're hoping it can like officially, it'd be great if it was ever in like AQA or XL or, you know, one of the ones we use growing up, that would be dope. So thank you. Amen. Amen. I receive it in Jesus name. Um, but yeah. Um, my favorite scene. Wow. I've never actually thought about that. And no one's actually asked me before. Um, I like the dating scene with Charlie. I like it because um, 
I know what how me and my friends speak when we go on dates of guys that we don't want to be with. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you're like moved to by a guy and you're like, this isn't it. Like I know those conversations. <laughs> and I think I think the Charlie scene really reflects those conversations that like my friends and I have. Mm-hmm. And you know when it's like you've gone on a date and you're low-key embarrassed that you've gone on a date with that guy. You, yeah, you, you try and keep it from your friends, but also what's happened is so crazy that you want to tell them. A hundred percent. That happens in that scene <laughs> where she she initially is like, mm, "Do I tell them that I've dated a white boy before?" Yeah, I went on a date with a white boy. Like, so yeah, I really like that scene. It's super funny, and I also love when white men are in the audience because they're like, "Is this what I do?" <laughs> is this I'm a like, absolutely, boy? honey. That is what you do. Literally, yeah, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> So with 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 the writing process, as we mentioned before, like there was inspiration taken from the district incident. Um, was it Ryan that you said that you was writing as well? Yeah. He had his own products that he worked on too, more pertaining towards men. But like, where else did you draw inspiration from to create it? Um, I took from everywhere. Like, so focus groups from Ryan, from my experiences, um, my friend, and I, I'm not going to say her name, but my friend has a boyfriend. Um, so there's a line about, um, <laughs> now I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> it's a safe space? It's a safe space. <laughs> it's a safe space. I promise this white guy. Um, and I think it was like we were at a party and he he's a really lovely guy. He's just, you know, typical like lad. And he went to say hi to us and he like, you know, he was a bit drunk. So he's like kissing everyone on the forehead. On the forehead? He, kissed, he was like kissing everyone on the forehead. Is he your child? Is he your dad? <laughs> it's literally like that kind of kiss. He's kissing one of the. Sorry, so I shouldn't find this so funny. Still, um, he's kissing one on the forehead, and he kissed my friend on the forehead, and she walked back, and she's like, "He just kissed off my edges." <laughs> <laughs> it was at the time that everyone was using like olive oil edge control. Like, no, like, why stop. would you do that? Like, I came with a little bag, so I didn't even bring my edge control. And you just lipped off my edges. <laughs> it's things like that. that like you know, It's things like that that the white man would have no idea what you're talking right, about. And probably right. won't even notice the difference. Well, exactly. they look fine, babe. Literally. And, like, every black woman in there was crying with laughter because we know what that's like. Like, you know when you yeah. finally got your edges to lay or you've got them to rest yeah. and you leave the house? Mm-hmm. You don't want anyone touching your head, you know? So, um, yeah. things like that. And then, like, music played a massive part in it. I love music. Um, I had a really difficult conversation with myself about some of the music that I was listening to. You know, the way that some of these artists were speaking about women, specifically black women, Mm. that doesn't align with my politics. Like that doesn't align with, you know, how I want to be spoken about. So I was conflicted at a time. Like, is this music I should be endorsing and I should be listening to? Like, if I don't agree and then I, and then I don't know where I'm at now, but I still listen to the music. (laughs) If that tells you anything. Um, but it was a big discussion. It was a big discussion among us. Um, and so this, for this particular run, we're doing a panel, which is basically about the image of black women and how it's transformed through music. At one time we were like hoes, then we were ugly, then we were baby mamas, and now we're queens and now we're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And now Pop Smoke is saying, well, may he rest in peace, but he's talking about he likes the dark skin, the melanin. That wasn't, a, that was, do you know what I mean? That wasn't in a song, mm-hmm. like, other, unless you were a conscious rapper, like, I don't know, Common or, you know. Um, so yeah, we're doing a panel discussion about that and I'm really, really looking forward to it. And we're hoping to get like an artist on there who has kind of gone through those times. So yeah. yeah. What was the moment like for you when you first got the green light that this would be turned into a play? 
Oh my gosh. Do you know what? I don't remember, but I remember the moment. Okay, so we did a scratch night, which is 45 minutes. Sold out because we have amazing friends. Like, sold out because our Ryan and I and Jessica, our community is insane, right? So it sold out. When we got, I think it was when we auditioned, like we entered this um, untapped for Edinburgh Fringe Festival. When we got that, I was like, this is real. And then when we got to Edinburgh, so we won that award and we sold out every single night in Edinburgh. I was like, wow, we've really got something. And every single year, so I think that was in 2017, Queen's has been on every single year since then. It's done a 14 city tour. Um, it's gone to so many cities in the UK and it's still on at Soho Theatre this year. And every single time it's on, I'm like, wow, we've created something. And right now it feels timeless. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should a play about misogyny while be, time- be timeless? Doesn't that mean that things aren't changing? I guess it does. But if we're being realistic, in <laughs> <laughs> this is England, right? In this- the change isn't going to happen overnight. Or in the next few in the next few years, I think I heard someone in an interview. I listened to a podcast this week, and I think it was about business and like the gender gap with women and men. So not even including race. And they said that it will take a hundred years to fix the gender gap. So when you add in race into it, I'm so sorry. It's maybe a thousand years. So yeah, unfortunately, it is frustrating to a degree. But it's plays like yours that will contribute towards that. It's plays that you're like yours that make having difficult conversations more digestible and more easy to understand yeah thank you do you get what i mean so yes it is a bit it is a bit frustrating that to like on a on a political level that the conversation is still being had but it would have been it would have been a lot more concerning if the play had happened in the first year we still had misogynoir and it wasn't being and it wasn't being returned that would be more of an issue it's a positive that we're still able to have these conversations that people are still willing for um, people are still willing to put these plays on their platforms when we know this is such such a critical issue. I, I, I love that perspective and I actually agree. And I think for me also, it's such a positive that like Queens can happen and there's podcasts like Dope Black Women that we can come on. Do you know what I mean? Like we can actually have conversations and we can see platforms and we can find like magazines and like places where these conversations are happening like on a regular basis. It is really dope. And I think, you know, it's nice to see that black women in some way are creating an industry Mm. um, out of like these experiences, which weren't necessarily the greatest experiences as well. I guess it's cathartic as well as black women to go and laugh, (laughs) to to kind of laugh at trauma. I feel like that's something we do as black people a lot. We'll be going through shit and we'll be like, this happened and this happened, but fuck it. And then we'll start laughing. Do you get what I mean? Definitely. And I feel like that all the different things that you discuss allow us to laugh at it. And then, as I said, have a discussion after. But for you, what's the response been like from family, friends, strangers? Like, what are some of the common themes that people have kind of said to you after they've watched it? It's been really mixed. So I think my favourite crowd to come and see Queens is, like, the middle-aged black women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're just, like... (laughs) at a point where they're done so they're just like i don't understand how you young women have picked out the past 20 30 years of my life and executed it so well especially for you know like our generation is different right yeah we are like we're not staying in jobs for 20 years absolutely not not like we're lucky if we're even staying in jobs for five years everyone Mm -hmm. is like i'm here for a year and a half two years if you're not treating me well i'm done or i'm gonna start my own thing 
And so like my mum's generation are people who have worked in places for five, 10 years and they've worked their way up. But that means they've dealt with years and years and years of misogynoir, years of microaggressions. Mm. They're still having to defend themselves. And so I got a lot of like really, really great reactions from that age group. And then I had a lot of black men come up to me and be like, I'm so sorry. Really? (laughs) It's not even funny. Literally black men crying, like, I'm so sorry. I need to revisit some of my behaviors. They'll come back in and bring their friends, whether that will be a bunch of guys. They'll come back and bring like their mums and their sisters. Um, because they're just like, this is being presented to me in a way that like, because I'm enjoying it, it's hitting me more because no one's screaming at me. Like I'm, I've actually come to see something and I'm seeing myself and I'm seeing it from the perspective of, you know, these particular black women. And it's making me like regret some of my behaviors. Mm. I don't know if you remember the roadman scene where the guys are moving to the girls and it's like, that was a lot of the guys that like that. A lot of our boyfriends were doing that five, 10 years ago or our brothers and they thought it was mm. harmless chirping but didn't realize that yeah it was essentially harassment you know so things like that but i do think that as well that sometimes even as a woman you don't re- and not even not even just pertaining to that example but sometimes until you see something through through the third party yeah. you don't actually deep what's actually going on so i've had conversations with my friends around like sexual experiences let's say yeah and it wasn't until one day, there was like loads of us there. It was me and all my close friends. And they're not all close friends together, if that makes sense. And we were talking about our sexual experiences. And I could see people in the room, the light bulb switching, where they're clocking at things that they thought were okay or were normal weren't. Or they thought about experiences that happened years prior that they just ignored and, and swept under the rug. They were actually violations. But it wasn't until they heard someone else say it, they were able to deep that that actually wasn't okay. Because for them, they were like, oh, it wasn't really that. They just... They just did this. Do you get what I mean? So actually, when you think about that, I think it's it's no surprise that you have men who look at it in that way. But I also think it would go in hand with some women as well who would look at it and be like, I was accepting that or I was thinking that I was okay or I, I was entertaining that. But actually now through this lens, I see how it's a bit problematic. I and I went through that exact same thing with my friends. And yeah, I yeah. And it's sad. And also it, get, it gets to the point where you're like, is it too late to go back and reconfront this? And mm. I think that's why we have a lot of met black men apologizing because it's like, do, are they willing to go all the way back? Or do they just want to say like, oh, sorry, because that's one that, what's on their hearts at the minute. Mm. Um, because yeah, I, and it's, I always, I call it the grime scene era, but when I say I grew up in that, in that time, it wasn't just the music that I'm talking about. It was like the culture. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. like you said so many toxic things were happening and so many violations were happening that we just thought were normal I want to ask you for other people that may go to watch it after listening to this or have already watched it what do you want people to take away from the play do you know what? I don't I don't I don't think that I don't even think I want them to take away I know this sounds crazy but all I want them to take away is that these are voices and these are experiences and how can you make sure that nobody goes through that again that's it. Uh-huh. Like, from what you hear, from what you see, the parts that are bad, the parts that are true, the parts that are raw, like, what role can you play in ensuring that doesn't happen again? Uh-huh. Like, is it in just a little comment that you make or a little look? Like, how much do you go out of your way to make a black woman feel special and recognised, especially a young black girl? Do you know what I mean? I remember I was in London 
recently and I was on a train and there was like this young black girl. She like finished school. I could see that she was really tired. And I got up and I gave her my seat. And people were looking at me like, in the order of transport for London train services, this is the last person that should be given a seat. Like she's young, she should stand. But it's that thing of like, I see you and Mm. actually you're allowed to be tired. And it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it seems so dramatic, but I know what that meant for her and I know what it meant for me. And so how far can we go to make sure that the experiences that are spoken about in Queens, we don't become perpetuators of those same things? I love that. I think that's really powerful, actually. Um, and I encourage everyone listening to make sure they check out Queens of Sheba play. And we're actually doing a giveaway on our Instagram for it as well. So make sure you guys get involved with that. Um, But my last question, I guess, to you is, what do you hope to happen, will happen from visibility of plays like yours? Um, I think more programming, like put more plays like this in theatre and don't put them on for three days. Like give them a long run, give them at least three weeks, give them a month, you know, two months. Because I think Queen's has proved that people will buy, like we sell out every show that we do. And I'm praying that by the grace of God, we sell out for this particular run because it's our longest. But um, we sell out, we've brought new audiences into theatres and there are so many black women playwrights that are doing exactly the same thing. They're bringing Mm. new audiences into theatres. They're doing amazing kick-ass work. But why are their shows only on for one day? Why are they on for three days? Why are they just on for a weekend? Why is there no matinee? Do you know what I mean? So like theatres need to start like programming um plays from black women properly like give them the run that they the runs that they deserve um i think there are so many plays written by white playwrights that don't sell out and this is okay with it it's mm. like oh don't worry it's a thursday afternoon like it's totally fine that you haven't sold out but when you have a when you're a black woman running a play it's like you feel like you have to strive for excellence and you have to do the most do you know what i mean like we have to sell out like why is that our goal surely our goal should just be that like <laughs> we're creating and we're in a theater and people are open to seeing it but it's like with us we're so driven towards selling out and by god's grace we always do but where's the room for black mediocrity <laughs> mediocrity basically um but yeah so i i think theaters need to do a better job at programming black women's plays for longer i love that well thank you so much for joining us on the date black women podcast this week thanks for having me thanks for listening guys don't forget to like share and subscribe and make sure you check out the queens of sheba